came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. I'm Xenia Chmutina. And I'm Darian Alexander-Williams. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Today's episode is part of season four. Thank you for tuning in. Okay, hi everybody. Welcome back to week two of season four. Hey, how are you doing? Hey. Hey guys. How are you today? Um, it's it's winter. I am uh, I'm trying to make it through. <laughs> <laughs> Is it cold? Uh, it's gotten cold in Massachusetts. Yes. Like how cold? How cold is cold? See, I don't want to do that now because I feel like <laughs> your, your threshold might be different than mine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it will be for sure, right? So <laughs> <laughs> it is exactly at freezing temperature right now. <laughs> nice. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's pretty cold. I mean, okay. I'm kind of, yeah. I mean, you know, like where, where I grew up, um, <laughs> I remember mom would say, oh, it's minus 25 today. Great weather. Like, let's go play outside. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then once, so, um, I don't know, a few years ago, we, we went uh, for New Year, we went to, to see my mom uh, with my husband and his brother. And it was minus 42 outside. And we, we still went to do barbecue outside at minus 42. Wow. And so <laughs> my brother-in-law just left this um, glass of whiskey, I think, outside. And whiskey froze. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, oh, my God, what am I doing here? Like, why am I outside? You know? <laughs> but it was great. Totally normal behavior. Totally um, normal behavior. Yeah, we used to, like, wait till the sun came out anytime during the year in Ireland and then like try to go to the beach and get a suntan, whatever the, te- the temp- <laughs> it was, it wasn't about temperature. It was about the sun breaking through the clouds. Right. <laughs> oh, I won't even tell you what it's like in Florida. Cause that, that'll just make everyone jealous. No, sorry. Mm-hmm. It's pretty mild right now. Although there was a, there was like this weird temperature swing recently where it really wreaked havoc on my yard with some of the plants. <laughs> I, I like how like why are we talking about the weather what, what happened to us all like this is what happens in 2021 literally ran out of conversation so <laughs> straight into the weather chat okay, yeah we're no. stuck inside yeah that's <laughs> true that's that is um well yeah i'm excited it's um the start of your section of season four darian yes. and we are really looking forward to diving in and um, you've been uh, working over the fall to conduct interviews and produce this content so mm-hmm. yeah we can't wait mm-hmm. what what have you got in store for us today yeah uh i'm so excited so this first uh this first conversation is with uh dr Fela jacobs at the university of minnesota to really get into the contributions of black feminism um, with our understanding of disaster, um, touching on intersectionality and also expanding upon that because that is not the only thing that uh, the black feminism has sort of shaped um, or helped us think through. So should be a good time. Fantastic. I think we're all in for a treat. So let's listen to the exit. So throughout the season, we've moved towards deepening our understanding of disaster and the structural conditions that produce it. And my guest today to help us in doing this is Dr. Fiola Jacobs. Dr. Jacobs is assistant professor in urban and regional planning at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. She has done a lot of work interrogating disaster mitigation plans and policies through a black feminist lens. 
She's presented on abolition and emergency management and has experience working for a mental health agency, creating and facilitating anti-oppression workshops on migration, racism, and mental health. Welcome, Fayola. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so hyped to have you here and uh, to be sharing space with you. And um, maybe to, to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about how you found your way to the world of disasters and disaster work? All right. So I it was a very convoluted journey. I did not know that I was going to end up in disaster work, um, but I was born and raised in the Caribbean and so was used to <laughs> disaster shaping our lives. Um, so when I was in primary school, the... Um, volcano on a neighboring island exploded um, and a lot of people who were living in Montserrat came across to think it's and to, like started going to school with us and um, we grew up with hurricanes earthquakes floods all these kinds of things it kind of sounds kind of apop- apocalyptic when I list them like that but um, disasters like really really influenced the ways I lived my life because it changed how I went to school we had to start going to school in shift systems after a major hurricane it's it resulted in my grandparents moving from a neighboring island to come to live with us after their house was torn up by a disaster, after their house was torn up by a hurricane. And so it really was, in some ways, parts of my everyday life that I never really thought about um, in an academic concept context. So when I finished my first degree and I was living in Toronto and running workshops on migration and mental health from an anti-racism standpoint. I did not know that I was going back to school for disasters. I thought I was going back to school for public health. And I came across this book that talked about the connections between um, public health and urban planning. And I was just like, okay, this this concept of the built environment really shaping us is really, really calling me. And I followed that calling to UNC Chapel Hill, where I started my master's in urban planning. And I remember going to one of my professor's classes, one of my professor's offices, and not really knowing what I was interested in or what exactly was calling me here. And he asked me what I was interested in. And I was like, you know, mental health, black communities, health in this really broad sense. I'm interested in how people relate to their environments. I'm interested in tourism. And he's like, "Uh, do a couple, take a couple classes. Let's streamline these interests and have a conversation later. And the first elective that I took was a class called Planning for Disasters and Climate Change. And it was like the proverbial aha moment everything fell into place everything clicked and i realized i didn't need to streamline my interests because disasters held everything for me disasters were about blackness and black people disasters were about the environment disasters were about health disasters were about everything and everyone that i cared about and Um, my professor described me as having caught the disaster bug and there has been no looking back since. Wow. I'm really glad that you, uh, that you didn't streamline and that you didn't (laughs) shrink your interests. Um, and I, um, maybe we can start with sort of this, this question of people. Um, so, and you know, this is not part of the questions that I brought up with you earlier. Um, but, uh, how, when we think about disasters and we think about people, I think the first sort of concept that we, that our field jumps to is, um, vulnerability. And I want to know, uh, if you have any thoughts about like vulnerability as a concept, what's that, what that has meant for you? Um, how do you deploy it or how do you not deploy it? Um, yeah. 
it's it's funny um as you said that i was like i love the concept of vulnerability i think vulnerability is great within our personal relationships and even how (laughs) i show up to classes you know like i think that teaching is such a vulnerable space because you're teaching and you're learning and you're like trying to create this um like productive learning space with students like vulnerability is so necessary um social vulnerability on the other hand um i guess i have i've always had a bone to pick with it um but it's less about what it actually is and more about how it's operationalized by a lot of researchers and it's operationalized to talk about race but not racism it's operationalized to you're just like okay count the number of black and brown and indigenous people in this place count the number of um disabled people count the number of seniors count the number of children count the number of black single mothers who don't have cars and there we have found our vulnerability and these are the people that we have to that we have to do the favor and save uh whereas for me that's not how we can approach things that's um a very surface level um a very surface level approach to understanding how disasters affect people's lives. So for me, I really like to turn to fields or lenses that people have used more critically in the literature. So environmental justice, I'm sh- it has there are lots of critiques that you can make about how people operationalize it in the literature too but the reality is it was started it is of and by black and brown people um it was a radical it is a radical fight to breathe clean air drink clean water etc i mean it is about the people who it is about as opposed to it's by the people who it is about as opposed to social vulnerability which as far as i can tell was a term that was coined by academics and is applied to um is applied to certain so-called vulnerable populations So you actually said a lot that I think kind of like neatly connects with my next question. Um, In terms of like my assessment of the contributions of feminism to my practice, my daily life, my research, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it goes from the micro to the macro um, on a micro level. You brought up vulnerability in teaching and classroom and sort of, I think um, one of the ways that feminism has guided my understanding and particularly black feminism has guided my understanding of moving through this world is like uh, assessing myself as a full person in all these dimensions and, um, and being mindful of that and showing up in spaces as a full person. Um, and when we get to sort of the macro, you already sort of touched on certain, uh, ideas or certain lenses maybe sort of grappling with social categories, but not grappling with dynamics. Um, it was mm-hmm. sort of what I heard. And so mm-hmm. um, you have a really amazing paper out, which we will be linking in the show notes <laughs> on, uh, on sort of black feminism's place in the disaster world in in planning specifically. And so maybe to start off can I ask like, how might we distinguish black feminism from white feminism or mainstream feminism? So when I think about mainstream feminism and white feminism, I think a lot about the fight in the U.S. for women to get the vote and the way that white women left black, indigenous, Latinx and all other non-white people behind when they were like, yes, we've got the vote, wait will come back for you if we'll, you'll get your turn just now and that is how i think about white feminism like centering gender without an understanding that gender and experiences of sexism are also experienced by are also shaped by experiences of racism classism you know the 
the standard things that we think about when we think about the term intersectionality. And I mean, I hesitate to think about Black feminism's contribution as just being intersectionality, just because even before the word was used, like Black feminism had so many things that to offer us. Um, but I think a lot, one of the most powerful things is that people were talking, Angela Davis was talking about intersectionality before Crenshaw termed, said the term intersectionality, you know? And so it's really this um, far-reaching back concept. I mean, Sojourner Truth said intersectionality without saying intersectionality. And so what, for me, Black feminism does is it moves us from this liberal form of feminism where everything is based on the individual and we move, we're moved to think about systems. And when we think about the individual, we're we're pushed to think about the individuals that we leave out. Um, and so Black women's standpoint is often um, deleted or like put in, included as an aside to things. Whereas um, in, in Black feminist thought, Patricia Hill Collins really talks about Black women as agents of knowledge. And when we think about feminist standpoint theory um, and insider, outsider, the concept of insider outsiders what we see is that black women have existed have been pushed to the margins but at the same time they have had to understand everything from the white woman's perspective because that was the mainstream perspective but then they also understood things looking in to look at almost looking into gender in the ways that they were left out so there's this more complete understanding when we take all of these standpoints when we take all of these individual experiences and assess knowledge claims in conversation with each other and like create this new body of knowledge this new epistemology um and so for me Black feminism is not an or to white feminism. Black mm -hmm. feminism is central for me as a Black woman and how I move throughout life. Thank you. That was really comprehensive. I love this paper that that you have published. Um, it's guided like plenty of my writing. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners have already read it and some people will read it after hearing this conversation. <laughs> um, so how have you sort of been able to incorporate this centering of black feminist thought, knowledge production, ways of being and relating, um, assessing. Um, how have you been able to incorporate that into the way that we understand risk and disaster? Growing up in the Caribbean with all these disasters, like, I mean, I'm sure from the way I described it, it could sound terrifying and horrible, and at certain points it was, but it was also disaster. I remember the first really bad hurricane that we were about to get, and my family and I went to the grocery store, and I could have sworn it was the same energy as the energy that we have around Christmas time in the Caribbean. Um, so the stores were full. You were seeing people that you hadn't seen in years. Um, well, the stores were full of people and empty of goods for the most part as they were in people's carts. But, you know, you were seeing people you hadn't seen in years. Everybody was talking to each other, checking in on each other. Like, are you like, do you have what? Like, are you do you have shutters for your house? Is everything OK with your your grandmother, like all of these questions, all of these really concerns for people. Um, and really, it just was this very, very community and communal feeling time. And even after the disaster, after the hurricane passed, uh, just really people really looking out for each other, um, telling each like, one of our roads was really badly damaged and so you had to talk to other people there's one main road that goes around the island so you had to talk to other people to figure out which roads weren't damaged so you could um circumvent the parts of the road that you can travel on it was like very very communal and i think of that as like a 
black feminist ethic, the ethic of caring, the ethic of accountability, community accountability, etc. And so when I think about how we understand risk and disaster, black feminism not only gives me the lens to understand the structures that brought us to the place, because really the disaster was there brewing before the hazard ever was thought of. Um, the political economy um, of the place, the geography of the place, everything was merging together to set up this disaster. And so black feminism not only helps me understand that, but it also helps me understand the way forward. Um, the way forward being um, personal account accountability to each other, um, community accountability, the way forward being mutual aid, which I know you are a big fan of and a big organizer within, um, and the ways forward yeah so for me it's more about it's 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 about the history it's about it's about understanding the history but it's also about understanding how do we move forward differently after this disaster and black feminism gives us a lot of insight into that from patricia hill collins to octavia butler you know You and I have been in conversation and I've um, had the pleasure of encountering some of the ways that you're thinking about this moment that we're in right now with COVID-19, with this really intense and kind of unimaginable or unimaginably um, destructive hurricane season, which has done a lot to Central America and the Caribbean and the U.S. Mm -hmm. South. Um and with sort of recent sort of political uprisings. And so I'm wondering how this way of assessing history and then uh, assessing present conditions, maybe thinking about the future, centering black feminism. I don't know what, what is, what's stirring for you these days? I mean, what stirs for me most is, and, and I don't know, I try to think it's been, it's been a long time since I've been home at home for a hurricane. So I'm really trying to think about like how much I'm romanticizing this thing of community. But I do, I think there's a, might be an element of me romanticizing, misremembering, like being very young at that time. But I definitely do think that it was a starkly different experience going grocery shopping. Um, before the lockdowns or during the lockdowns of COVID-19. And so that same supermarket experience, and of course, COVID-19 is a, in a lot, in some ways, a different kind of disaster um, where you literally can't, you're not touching people. Like that is the biggest, that is one of the big things. And so supermarkets like, were not full of either products or people because you had to limit the number of people inside and people were not people were also not talking to each other not checking on each other part of that is because we all have masks on we're social distancing etc but i really think there's a level of which and maybe that's because i don't have much family here um but there's a level to which being here during a disaster has just felt more individualistic and not as much checking on at least in the in-person senses or to some extent no to a large extent um in other ways like there was a 1200 stimulus check that was supposed to help people stay home um for the past how many months now um so like eight months something like that eight, like something ridiculous yeah so there was that that was our uh, that was our community care from the government and then we had all these where we had really beautiful things happening where the mutual aid networks that sprung up or were or existed before and were beefed up because people needed more um 
yeah, I just... I just think about how little we are caring about people, like the crass comments about um, people with so-called pre-existing um, pre-existing conditions should be staying home. They should be the ones responsible for. Um, they should be the ones responsible for not catching COVID because they're really the only vulnerable ones when we know that's not the case. Um, and when we know that we haven't provided the infrastructure for people to stay home, period. Uh, I really think COVID-19 is bringing out the best and the worst of us and especially the worst of us systemically when we think about frontline workers, restaurant workers who are having to work and continually expose themselves to basically toxic work conditions, um, risk their lives so that people can go out and eat, so that people can pretend that things are normal, so people can pretend that um, black and brown people aren't disproportionately dying during this pandemic. Uh, and I think that black feminism puts a spotlight on a lot of that, puts a spotlight on the historical conditions of racial capitalism that have led um, so many black and brown people to be working low-wage frontline service jobs, which are now the essential jobs. Um, and the paycheck does not match the presumed importance the now presumed importance of them um i think that black feminism tells us that mutual aid networks are part of the key to moving forward um part of the key to um healing and being different and saving ourselves i think that the uh, mutual aid network that we started here in boston um, for initially sort of like the first part of the pandemic, like air quotes, um, kind of eroded. And then we had to sort of decide to distribute our resources to the neighborhood mutual uh, aid networks because of, I think, an issue highly relevant um, to some of this conversation, which is like... Uh, not everyone was on the same page when discussing power, um, gender, gendered violence, um, race specifically. Uh, and, um, yeah. And not having a full understanding of that, a full communal understanding of that, um, produced a situation where our organization was supposed to be serving people in a disaster could no longer function after a while. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering, because you've touched on so much, like um, from, you know, black feminism's only contribution, like is not, it's not just intersectionality. There's so much more intersectionality is useful and important. But there's also so much more. You, uh, you, you mentioned Angela Davis, you um, mentioned German truth. You mentioned Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, and you also bring in this element of racial capitalism into this conversation. And so I just want to ask you straight up and I'll just get out a pen and take some notes. Like <laughs> who, who do you draw from in your work? What do you draw from in your work? This can be as academic or non-academic as you want it to be. Um, but yeah, like where do you, where do you pull in inspiration from ideas from, um, life? <laughs> um well i would say lately i have just started reading again the pan the pandemic froze me um perhaps even writing my dissertation froze me um the cup first year of tenure chat froze me i felt like um like, I felt like I, I needed a break. I was oversaturated. I couldn't focus on things. And so I was moved by what has moved me throughout my life, conversations with loved ones. Um, mm -hmm. I think I've learned a lot in conversation with you, Darian, um, with mm -hmm. our COVID-19 working group, with, um, mm -hmm. uh, with our um, working group on prison, 
prisons incarceration and their relationships to disaster management like being in conversation with people at a time when I wasn't able didn't feel able to read densely or the textbooks um, has really pushed me forward and it's also the conversations even with my friends outside of academia um, one of my closest friends she is uh an accountant is the wrong word, but I'm probably, but I would mess it up probably the same way she would mess up um, <laughs> saying what I do and just having conversations with her and about her daughter, my goddaughter, um, and the things that we want to see for this little black girl growing up. Those are the things that really push me forward. Um, in terms of, I think I mentioned to you that I was going to start rereading McKittrick's Demonic Grounds. So I um, have started that. And again, like, even just the introduction is so fire. Like, I just, I just get so many nuggets from it each time I revisit it. It's very, very dense um, and not not an easy breezy read. And that's what makes that's what makes me keep returning to it because I know there's more that I can mine from Mikatrick's words there. That makes sense. Um, so I also, in general, like <laughs> this is. Um, Bob Bolin, who is who is a sociologist, um, retired at from Arizona State, I think it was. I remember reading one of his papers on gender and disaster, and this paper was published just after Katrina, and it was saying everything that I really wanted to say about the problems with social vulnerability, the problems with environmental just the prob the possibilities of environmental justice for understanding disasters. Um Anna Olivia Brand and Charles Miller had recently put out a paper called Tomorrow I'll Be at the Table, Black Geographies and Urban Planning, a review of the literature. And I mean, as is obvious through me talking about Catherine McKittrick, like I really do think black geographies are such a it's such a rich field that urban planning can learn so much in conversation with that we don't often do enough i remember even at unc the urban planning building is a three minute walk from the geography building and there are so few conversations that go on between students and teachers in each um Danielle Zoe Rivera's recent piece um, on disaster colonialism that was just that was really really helpful for me um, and the things that I'm thinking about re the things that I'm, the books that I'm waiting to re be delivered um, Mimi Scheller she's a Caribbean studies scholar she has a book called Island Futures Caribbean Survival in the Anthropocene and that just came out I'm really excited to read that because I've been thinking engaging a lot with Scheller's work as I um, prepare to embark on this project on um, climate change and colonialism. Um, I recently just picked up Clyde Woods development drowns and reborn again yes <laughs> and i do need to and i'm really looking forward to reading that again and then also walter rodney's how europe underdeveloped africa i'm looking forward to revisiting that it's been a full decade since I've looked at that. I have no memory of it, but no detailed memories of it aside from my excitement and love and my world just exploding. Um, and I'm looking forward to reading that as well. The other book I'm excited about getting to is Sadia Hartman's latest book, Wayward Lives Beautiful Experiments. Um, and that one, like I... I'm really interested in how um, it sounds like it's a weaving of historical archival documents with imagination. And so I'm really excited about like learning to understand how, you know, we have so many lost histories that are buried in the Atlantic um, that didn't make the final crossing. Like, how do we imagine what lives, what those lives could have been, what those lives were like 
before they were tragically ended by the transatlantic slave trade. And I'm um I'm living. You gave us a full syllabus, a full reading list, a full <laughs> uh, curriculum, and I'm appreciative. On that note that you you just mentioned um, regarding the transatlantic slave trade um, and lives lost at sea or lives lost um, in places uh, where people were kidnapped and shipped off to, you have spoken in the past quite a bit, um, at least with me, about sort of feeling sort of deeper links between and across the Caribbean and the U.S. South. Um, you mentioned a few people who kind of touch on that in different ways. And so I want to know if you can share a little bit more about that and how that relates to disasters, how that relates to black geographies um, or any any of these other concepts that we've sort of brought up. I mean, I just think about the fact that both of these sites, and I mean, really, both of these sites, and really everywhere, has been shaped so much by anti-Blackness, by slavery and colonization. Um, and the U.S. South and the Caribbean, like, one of the easiest ways that you can link that is thinking about plantations um, and plantation slavery. And so... I just think it's no coincidence that in all these places where we, where black people were forced to grow sugarcane, um, sugarcane needs low-lying land. Um, and so that in most places is coastal regions. And so we are all on the coast. We are, so many of us are on the coast. Um, in the Caribbean, in Sankits, which is the island I grew up in, which is, uh, I try to describe to people, it's shaped like a drumstick. And so all the center of the island is completely mountain regions. And so all around the edges, it's flat sloping, slightly sloping land. And that is where all the sugar plantations were. And so when I think about the fact that all the sugar plantations are on the coast, um, and now we're dependent on the coast for tourism, because who wants to come to St. Kitts and not go to the beach? Who wants to come to St. Kitts and not be, have a sea view from their hotel room? Like all of these things are things that also place us at risk to climate change. Um, but all, but it's so hard to move there, to, to move, to think about moving elsewhere. Aside from the costs of moving, um, everything is centered around the sea. Everything is centered around that. And I'm not saying that there would not have been coastal populations if, if enslavement hadn't happened, but the ways that we are concentrated from Louisiana to think it's um, in coastal regions, I think is really um, symptomatic of colonization and enslavement. And so I think a lot like the project I'm thinking about next um, and reading and preparing for next is really thinking about how you don't hear conversations about the U.S. South and the Caribbean in the same breath, especially when it comes to climate change. But at the same time, when I first got to Louisiana, when I first visited Louisiana, I was like, am I home? Is this, is this? And then just in the U.S. South, like living in North Carolina, um, I was just really shocked by how people seem so familiar, right? In all these mm -hmm. beautiful and painful ways. And so I really, really want to turn to Atlantic studies, Black Atlantic studies, and really think through what that means for us. Um, I think I, 
I have an understanding of what it means past, but I think I want to understand what it means about for us moving forward, like what coalitions are possible, um, what networks are possible. Because like one of the things about racial capitalism is it is it about all systems of oppression is it isolates you it makes you feel like you are the only one in some ways um and there's a lot that we can learn from each other and we just need to make those connections thank you that's a really powerful reflection and i think as a floridian i feel very similar where i mean in florida especially it's just like it feels like the place where the the south and the caribbean are just like a gradient basically um depending on how far north or south you go and yeah. and then you realize it's kind of just all one i don't know one package one way of moving through the world um and one way that the world kind of moves through these places um yeah you uh you know, this might get spicy. This could not get spicy, but like you, you talk about things that we have to learn sort of collectively. Um, and you, you touched on different ways, uh, of building coalitions, different ways of setting up networks. Um, and you also sort of brought in this reminder of racial capitalism and like kind of all of us being embedded in capitalist systems that sort of incentivize certain ways of thinking over others, certain ways of relating over others. You, you you are a you're an assistant professor um, at a, pl- a planning program at a major <laughs> university, um, and I want to ask like what what it's like to sort of be grappling with all of these ideas and this work and these people um, in academic institution. Um, what's it like trying to do this work in an academic institution, um, and particularly. I feel like this could be a cliche question, but like, I think for you, it's not because you've also carried out a lot of meaningful work outside of the academy. And so, um, so that is why I pose this question to you and, you know, there's no pressure to have a perfect answer, but I'm curious. I mean, it's really taxing from the from the inception like the land that we're on the land that the academic institution is on is um where i am at university minnesota it's dakota land um and we have a bunch of we've been crafting land acknowledgements and working on that together but like i don't quite understand what that means or what that does if we're not giving the land back right um so to be part of an institution that is that has sapped life and resources from indigenous people from black communities from latinx communities from so many different communities like it's built on blood you know it's um built on that um edwidge dancy cat in the farming of bones there's a really um beautiful passage where she describes like sugarcane fields as looking like a field of bones um and i really think about the death and decay associated with so much of the work that we do um you know to think about like to literally think about the people who died to make university who were killed murdered to make university of minnesota a possibility um yeah it's really difficult but after working like i guess i technically was working for a quasi-governmental agency doing these anti-oppression workshops on racism and mental health and that itself like was on the same like it was on land in canada which was stolen from other sets of indigenous people you know um so 
there's no way like racial capitalism um the, these histories of genocide um don't give us an option to exist outside of them right and i i struggle with it every day i mean audrey our good sister audrey lord says the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house um and i think about that a lot because i mean i know she was talking a lot about sexism white supremacy like these systemic oppressions but i'm like is academia on the whole the master's tools is like are these things the master's tools and at the same time like we need to like literally survive and literally eat um in these times so i it's it's hard it's a lot to grapple with and i don't necessarily have the solution i'm just willing to keep on having conversations and keep on acting and trying to do differently so i mean when i got here um i haven't when i got to the university of minnesota um i have i have a couple community partners that i'm engaged with and i wasn't trying wasn't planning on doing academic work on minnesota because i pay attention a lot to the caribbean and the u.s south um and i didn't necessarily see a lot of hurricanes happening up here so it's kind of outside of my field but i mean for me part of it is to take resources from the university of minnesota and give it back to the communities that um that needs them that are owed them that they belong to and so part of me part of it is like really working with communities and trying to give back as many resources as possible um and for those resources to be controlled by those communities um yeah but i don't have answers <laughs> um that was an answer <laughs> and i think um your uh your reference to Audrey Lord makes I me mean, think of some conversations that we were having um just as like black student organizers. Um it's like, oh, you know, this this idea of like it, maybe it's not my job to fix the university, but then also this idea of like is the is academia the master's tool or is it the master's house? Like um because <laughs> like there's a difference there and like where are we right now? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. And I mean, it just, it just, it grants you like being a, being a PhD, being, um, middle-class light-skinned woman, being straight, being, you know, mostly able-bodied, um, being all of these things. It's, like affords you so much privilege and you're like what do i do with all this privilege um at the same time i mean intersectionality tells us things are complicated black feminism in general tells us things are complicated but it tells us we have to do the work um and um trying to do the work both politically and, and personally not that those two things are separate and i want to ask like in that spirit um is there is there anything else that you would like to share share with us in this moment because this has been such an amazing conversation and specifically you know any work that you are maybe excited that might be coming out in the near future well i have i'm second author on this fabulous paper with this amazing scholar you may have heard of him <laughs> darian alexander williams um, and so <laughs> Uh, there's a piece that was we have a piece that was recently accepted so that will be coming out I was working on a piece on COVID-19 and racial capitalism that's currently under review so I can't link that right now but hopefully that will come out um, end of the year beginning of next year um is there anything else I'd like to share? This has been a really great conversation and I am so honored that you thought to include me in these series of conversations that you're having. You are one of my favorite people and scholars and this has been such a blessing. I um, 
am blushing um and i just want to say thank you for for joining us today phil i I mean you're also one of my favorite people one of my favorite scholars uh, one of my favorite friends um i'm glad we're on this journey together and um maybe in closing um if you have any social media or website that you care to share where can we find more from you and i can link it in the show notes Google Scholar, maybe. <laughs> Lord knows my my Twitter exists. <laughs> it's biology she said, underscore. I'm professional. I'm but, professional. <laughs> <laughs> my Twitter exists, but it's not very active. And my Instagram has become a shrine to my father and occasional ho shit. So we'll, so I don't know that those are things that people want to find me on but uh yeah <laughs> well thank you I'll, we'll make sure that we have your google scholar Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to the fabulous duo, Darian Williams and Fiola Jacobs on Disaster Deconstructed Podcast. 